Good morning. Why don't y'all stand with me and turn to Luke 12 as we read from God's word. Luke 12, starting in verse 13, and it reads like this. Someone from the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Friend, he said to him, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? He then told them, watch out and be on guard against all greed because One's life is not in the abundance of his possessions. Then he told them a parable. A rich man's land was very productive. He thought to himself, what should I do since I don't have anywhere to store my crops? I will do this, he said. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones and store all my grain and my goods there. Then I'll say to myself, You have many goods stored up for many years. Take it easy. Eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your life is demanded of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? That's how it is with the one who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Let's pray. Um. Father, we come to your word week in and week out because we know we have problems and you have answers. Uh, Father, but our biggest problem is that it's so easy for us to spend our time looking at other people's problems and ignoring our own. Um, And so I pray that that wouldn't be the case today. Uh, Would you remind us that you want a personal relationship with us, Uh, Would we be quick to acknowledge that we're not all of what we should be? And would we plead and cry out for you to change us, Father? Uh, We ask that you would do that. Be kind to us today as we approach your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, You can take your seat. Uh, It's been said, whoever said money can't buy happiness didn't know where to go shopping. Most of y'all don't know who Bo Derek is, so I've got another one, and it says this. Um, I prefer the better things. People with no money act like money isn't everything. Drake, right? Uh, we laugh and we snicker, and we would all say that, but inside of our hearts, um, I think the reason why we laugh is because somewhere deep down in our hearts, we believe both of those statements. So uh, imagine with me, if you could, that um, you leave from church here, you walk out the steps, you finally get cell phone reception, because you know you don't get it down here, um, and you get a voicemail. And the voicemail says that you've just won $112 million from the Georgia lottery. What would you do with the money? Now, I'm not trying to find the contrived Christian answer that you would put up. Uh, I want the immediate answer, the reflex. What is the first thing that you thought about? (laughs) Student loans. All right, yeah, yeah, you didn't have to say it out loud. I don't care that much. Uh, But this is the point that I'm trying to make. Chandra and I had uh, found ourselves in a place Well, not like this, because we never won, but we found ourselves in a place uh, where we uh, got a large sum of money that we didn't do anything for. When we were getting ready to move to Atlanta to plant um, this church, or uh, church in Atlanta years ago, Chandra saved up all her sick days from work, and her goal was that she was going to cash those out. And so on a Friday morning, I go to the computer screen, I check the bank statement, and I'm caught off guard because I see something in my bank account that um, yeah, I didn't really know what it was or why it was there. It looked like a smudge on the screen. I tried to wipe it off. Um, but then I found out uh, it was a comma. And I just wasn't used, <laughs> I wasn't used to seeing those in my bank. Like I saw them in books and magazines and letters, uh, but not in my bank account. And the number to the left of it was larger than I thought that it should be. 
And immediately we thought about all this, well, I thought about all the stuff that I was going to do for us, um, and then we found out it was a clerical error, and we had to return lots of the money. But the point is, why did I do that? Why do we do that? Why is that the reflex of our soul? And I think it's the reflex of our heart because you and I are functioning materialists. And here's what I mean by functioning. We're too sophisticated and smart and Christian to actually say that we're materialists. But here's a definition. Materialism is this, attaching the wrong price tag to the things of this world and the things of God. Materialism is this, I think my quality of life will go up if my income goes up. Like I said, we're too Christian, um, we're too mature to actually say that, uh, but words have never been the best descriptor of what we feel. Our actions and attitudes are that. And I think that we overvalue, we overestimate the ability of money to satisfy our soul. And it's not just poor folks or rich folks, right? So if you grew up poor, um, it was likely you blamed lots of the things that went on in your life on the lack of money. So money seemed like it was the solution. If only I had more money, then we wouldn't fight. Then I wouldn't be hung hungry. Then I would have friends. If you, if you grew up rich, uh, you likely saw what money could do to lift your spirits. Um, if you grew up rich, it was likely that whenever you kind of felt low that you could go out and buy something and temporarily your spirits would be lifted. So the presence of a bunch of it reinforces it that money solves things. If you grew up middle class like I did, um, you had just enough money to be entitled and to take for granted uh, all of what you had, but you didn't have enough money to keep you from being envious of what somebody else had. Regardless of where you fall, I think we all... Uh, uh, overestimate the ability of money to satisfy. We're functioning materialists, and I think it stays there because materialism often puts on a good disguise. And the only time that we really know or examine that it's there is if we're in church listening to a sermon on materialism. Here's why it's so hard to spot. Uh, materialism is unquantifiable. How do you draw the line, right? How many pairs of shoes is too many pairs of shoes, right? What's the one that puts you over the line to, well, now you're materialistic. It's silly. It's absurd. You can't do that. Here's what else that makes it so hard. Uh, it doesn't really seem like there's a downside to being materialistic. If you're an adulterer, you may lose your wife your husband, your family, your respect. If you are a liar, you may lose uh, your friends. If you are materialistic, people envy you. They want to be around you. You get attention. And if you really started from the bottom and made it, then people would actually make a movie about you someday. So it makes it hard because it seems like materialism has no downside, and I think that's what makes it so dangerous because it flies under the radar and you and I don't feel it, and I want you to hear this. Um, it's not that you don't struggle with materialism because you don't feel it. It may be that um, you're so affected by it that you don't feel it. It may be that it's already started to become so much of a problem that there's nothing that would alert us to the fact that it's there. That we don't feel it any more than we feel the air around us because we've just gotten used to it. The culture that we live in, it's a blind spot there. So there's nobody outside of these walls maybe that's going to call us out on it because this is the current of how our stream goes. Frederick Douglass, uh, in the narrative of his life, 
Uh, he talked about a blind spot that they had in their culture, or what folks viewed as a blind spot, slavery. And so he said this. He talked about this one lady who was very nice um, until she got slaves. And hear what he says about it. He says, but alas, this kind heart had but a short time to remain such. The fatal poison of irresponsible power was already in her hands and soon commenced its infernal work. That cheerful eye under the influence of slavery soon became red with rage. That voice made all of a sweet accord change to one of harsh and horrid discord. And that angelic face gave place to that of a demon. And he said she was so affected by her culture, she didn't know that he changed. But it was clear as day to somebody on the outside that this power changed her. And I think the same is true with materialism. We don't know how much it affects us, but like a frog that's boiled alive in a pot where the heat is gradually turned up, this is the danger that you and I face. And that's why we come to God's word, because we need somebody from the outside to speak to those of us that are inside about what's going on. So I just want to spend our time asking, what does God have to say about the natures and danger of materialism? You should already be in Luke 12, so we're going to start there and get to work. Luke 12, verse 1, here's the scene. Meanwhile, a crowd of many thousands came together so that they were trampling one another, and Jesus began to say to his disciples first. Jesus is spending time preaching about the kingdom. He's preaching about the dangers of hypocrisy. He's preaching about how people are going to find true satisfaction and acceptance from God and make their way to heaven and a guy comes and interrupts his speech. Look here at verse 13. Someone from the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. This is God that has a one-track mind and as Jesus is speaking on eternal life, the only thing he thinks about is the money that is due him. And what we see is somebody so concerned with money that money, once again, lies at the heart of relational strain between family. And he comes to Jesus with his concern. And you and I think it's innocent enough or it's the right thing that we want to come to Jesus with our concerns and we absolutely want to do. But notice what he does. He doesn't ask a question. He hurls a command. Jesus, tell him to do this. This is a guy that comes to Jesus and he already has an agenda of what he wants to do. Jesus is only useful to him in so much as Jesus can bring what he really wants and that's money. Aren't you glad that we've outgrown that posture towards Jesus? That's sarcasm if you couldn't um, tell. And Jesus does this. He corrects the man. 14, friend, he said to him, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? It's basically him saying, friend, um, I don't work for you. Right? It's what, uh, right, what, what my wife said early on in our marriage where she would say, John, I love you. Uh, but I'm not your maid or your mother, so I need you to pick your stuff up. Jesus came to serve mankind, but make no mistake, Jesus is not your butler, and life works, life does not work out when we treat him as such. And then he goes on and he told them, watch out and be on your guard against all greed because one's life is not in the abundance of his possessions. Here's what I love about Jesus. This man comes to him with a very real felt need. Um, and where Jesus sees bad fruit, he doesn't waste his time with the symptoms. He goes rightly to the root of things. This man talks about money and he thinks the problem is it's not allocated rightly. He doesn't have all of what he should have. And Jesus goes and says, there's a different problem here. There's a heart problem. You have to watch out against greed. They say that if you're getting ready to have a heart attack, one of the signs is that your left arm uh, may start to tingle. 
what Jesus does is he sees this man with a problem that everybody else would just see is a tingling left arm. And he diagnoses it as this is a heart problem. Sometimes, right, your felt needs um, are not the most important things that go on in your life. Sometimes your felt needs are really a sign that there's something deeper, really wrong with our hearts. And Jesus doesn't waste time. He goes right to that, and he gives him a double warning. Look here in verse 15. He says, watch out and be on your guard. It's like somebody that says, look out. You don't have to be aware of a danger, but the very fact that they say look out lets you know that there's something wrong and you look for what's wrong. But if somebody says look out and be on your guard, it's like being in here and a, and a stampede of people just start running. You can spend your time and try to look or you can join in the stampede and run and find out later. Jesus is saying, well, watch out and be on your guard. Why? And he'll say, be on your guard against all greed. The English standard version translates this spade and it says, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. That there's more than one kind of greed. When you and I think of greed, we primarily think of uh, uh, um, uh, covetousness or an open-handed greed. What I have is not enough. I need more. You and I think of the guy that comes to a potluck and there's a clear sign that says uh, just one wing until everybody gets some and he takes more or he politely waits until the end because he knows once the whole line goes through, then I can go through and I can have as much as I want to because folks had. We think greed, what I have is not enough. I need more. Give me, give me, give me. But that's not the only kind of greed that there is. There's one that says, what I have is not enough. I need more. There's another type of greed that's closed-fisted. And it says, what I have is all that I need, and I'm not going to let go of any of it. Okay, notice what he says here. He says, be on your guard against all greed. Why? Because one's life is not in the abundance of his possessions. Your life is not made up of how much stuff that you have. And here's why he calls us to be on guard, because this one is a silent killer. There is a type of greed that you and I can spot, that somebody that just goes from thing to thing and wants it, but there's a type of greed that actually looks like contentment. It looks like somebody that says, well, all, all I have is what I need, and, and I'm not going to go after and try to get more, but I'm not going to share what I have. It believes the lie that a material abundance will lead us to spiritual fulfillment. And here's the toughest thing about this. Uh, even if you're not a Christian and you consider yourself a good moral person, a filter of morality won't catch this any better than a fishnet will catch water. It'll seep right through. What we'll see in this story is that the man does nothing morally wrong. He doesn't invest money in strip clubs or drugs or ammunition or oppressing anybody. So this is more than just right, wrong. I'm going to try to do good deeds and not do bad ones. This is something that's more dangerous. And that's why Jesus says to be on your guard against all kinds of greed. And let me just make this point really, really quick. Um, what Jesus did right here in taking a, a desire for a question this man had and changing the conversation uh, that's the reason why we as a church try to do what we do, and we call that preaching expositionally. And all that that is, that's a big word that just means when we preach, when we talk from God's word, we're trying to make sure the point of what we say is actually the point of what's here in the text. And the reason why we do that 
is because it's a fine thing to go to Jesus to get your answers. The problem is if we only go to him to get answers to questions that we ask, we assume that we're always asking the right questions. And when we go to Jesus, not just to get his expertise on something that we need his help with and then discard him as soon as we're done with that, but when we go to him to set the agenda, what we find out is that he tells us and he hips us to things that we didn't even know were problems for us. And an added bonus of this is that as we go to God's word and we're reminded that he speaks to all of us, we're reminded that God draws us in to a personal relationship. And the beauty of what that means is that Jesus himself, God of the universe, talks directly to us. And here's what that frees us from. It frees us from going to God about what somebody else needs to do. This man in the story, he's going to Jesus for something that somebody else needs to do. He thinks that his biggest problem is something that somebody else hasn't done. And Jesus turns it back on him. I want to free you from the burden, from feeling as if the biggest problem is something that somebody else has done. God is calling you into a personal relationship with him. And he does want you to love him and love others. But there's things that he wants to do in your own heart first. So let him and don't try to distract him by talking about what somebody else needs to do. I'm saying this as much to myself as I am to anybody else. This man talks about how the allocation of resources needs to change. And Jesus tells him the attitude of his heart needs to change. And so just look here at how greed is discovered and diagnosed. Look here in verse 16. Then he told them a parable. A rich man's land was very productive. Stop right there. The very first thing that we see um, is all of those verbs there, that sentence is passive, which means it was a thing that happened to the rich man. A rich man's land was very productive. Uh, 1 Samuel 2, 7 makes it very, very clear that God is the one that brings wealth. And in an agricultural society, that sets in deeply because people know, I can work, but my income is largely dependent not on how hard I work, but what God does with the weather. It's lost on us because we think our income is tied directly to our smarts and our work. But what's very, very clear here is that God blesses this man. It is a rich man who has, he has more than he needs and he gets more than he can hold on to. God blesses him. And then look what he does. He thought to himself, what should I do since I don't have anywhere to store my crops? I will do this, he said. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones and store all my grain and my goods there. Then I'll say to myself, you have many goods stored up for many years. Take it, eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. There's at least four things that he does here. One, the very first thing is he consults himself and himself alone. God blesses. And he very quickly puts God in the back seat. He only thinks to himself and of himself. And he says, what should I do with all of the stuff that I have? And do you know what comes in between that question and the resolution? Nothing. He thinks to himself and he decides to do stuff for himself. I heard it a long time ago um, that if the only tool you have is a hammer, then every problem becomes a nail. If the only person you think about when it comes to money is you, then whenever you get more, you're only going to spend it on yourself. God blessed, and God's put in the back seat because he doesn't even think to consult God. 
If God has provided you with income or anything and you don't acknowledge that God gave it or ask him how you are to use it, then it means one of two things. It means, one, you may not actually believe that he was the one that provided it for you. Or two, you don't care what he says about things. You think that it's yours. He consults himself and only himself. And so it makes it very easy to deceive himself. Self-deception thrives when you have an absence of conversation partners. He thinks of himself. And look at the problem that he says. Look, what should I do since I, have, since I don't have anywhere to store my crops? I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones and I'll store all of my crops. So what he says is instead of all this extra income, instead of him saying, I'm already a rich man, I have more than what I need, and now I have more than what I need, the thought doesn't even come to his mind to give to anybody else, but he deceives himself and feels like this blessing is a problem that he has to solve, and he immediately goes into construction mode, tearing down the barns that he has, setting up new ones, getting contractors. This is why Ecclesiastes 5 that we read, it said that the man who loves money, even his abundance doesn't let him sleep. This is somebody that was free to enjoy what he had, but because of this lust for more, he finds himself grinding and toiling, grinding and toiling. He deceives himself because he only thinks to himself and talks to himself. The question that I have is this. Uh, how do you make decisions about money when you have more than what you need? Who do you talk to? Who do you involve in conversations of, about money? I think we can be very candid in conversations about money uh, with people that will help us make more of it. So our uh, accountants know exactly how much we make, how we spend things. You're trying to get a loan. You're trying to get a house. You're trying to invest money. These people know exactly how much we make, how we spend it, and they have this keen insight into our money to advise us on how to make more. Uh, but then when it comes to people that maybe Christians or brothers and sisters that, you, that may not be financially literate, but they can spot greed and selfishness from a mile away. How closed off are we with them about our money? How private are we? With one group that will help us make more, we, we, we let them examine everything. With another group that could protect us from greed, we say, ah, well, it's none of your business what I make. One of the greatest ways to keep from deceiving ourselves is to involve conversation partners. That's a Minor point, let's go on. The next thing is this. He doesn't only consult himself, he deceives himself because he's preoccupied with himself. Look here at how many times the word I or my is used. Verse 17. What should I do since I don't have anywhere to store my crops? I will do this, he says. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones and store all my grain and my goods there. Then I'll say to myself, you, the only time he uses a second person pronoun is when he's talking to himself. You have many goods stored for many years. Take it easy. Eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. We can find ourselves in a problem when we think all of God's blessings that come to us are for us. That's just not the case at all. In God's divine economy of blessing, you and I are mere mailmen. We have it in our possession, but it's not ours. We're meant to deliver it and distribute it as God has determined. What would you do if you came home and your mailman was sitting on your front porch eating chocolates that were sent for you. You would say, uh, I don't think that you know how all this works. 
my name's on it. That's not yours. You were supposed to distribute, not devour. This is what God does with us, y'all. All of us, we don't own anything. Here's everything that you own. Everything that you take with you on the other side of death is what you own. We're stewards. God has intended blessings to flow through us. And when we get into this mindset where we only consult ourselves, we deceive ourselves, and then we only think about ourselves, what we find is that money deceives us. Its importance and its role in our lives is, is, is overinflated. Look, here what he says in verse 19. He says this, then, he, then I'll say to myself, that's better translated, then I'll say to my soul, you have many goods stored up for many years. Take it easy, eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. He had the right goal. It's the same goal that all of us had. We want our souls to be satisfied. We want to be content. We want to be full. And to be content and full is we want to live in life in this world not feeling like we need anything else to complete us. And he has the right goal, the same goal that all of us did. He's just trying to fill it with all of the wrong stuff. That Ecclesiastes calls this pursuit of money chasing after wind. So it means this, if you have two, fulls of, two fistfuls of wind or 20 fistfuls of wind, you still have nothing. Here's what money does. If I could paint it like a picture. Think of a balloon, a deflated one and an inflated one. One of them looks smaller. The other one looks really, really big. And in one sense, the balloon is full. But it's full of what? Air. So you pop it, and it's a balloon full of nothing. So take all that air, take it out of a balloon, and put it in a jar. And what you find is this. Do you know what you call a jar full of air? An empty jar. Do you know what you call a soul full of all the possessions in the world? And that's it. An empty soul. But money will have us believing that our satisfaction, that our fulfillment can be found in the next phone, in the next house, in the next pair of shoes, in the next car, in, in the next whatever. And so here's what God does. Here's what I love about God. It starts off and it says that this man thinks to himself um, and God butts in, verse 20. God is an eavesdropper, y'all. I just want y'all to know this. Uh, but God said to him, right? And that's weird because it's like, well, I was talking to myself um, and God saying, there is no such thing as talking to yourself. Uh, we used to have two phone lines in my house when I grew up. And so I would talk to my friends on one phone line, and I would hear some, somebody pick up the phone, and it would be my mom or my dad, and I would say, Mom or Dad, like, I'm on the phone, I'm talking. Um, and they would say, well, one, I made you, and two, uh, I'm paying for this phone bill, so it's impossible for me to eavesdrop because everything here is mine. This is what God's saying. It's impossible for God to eavesdrop. If we won't give ourselves a conversation partner, God will make him one. And God comes in and says this. Look, he starts off and he says this. You fool. Now, you read the whole Bible, and you know what you'll find out? This is the only place where God personally calls somebody a fool. And if you read the whole Bible, what you'll find out is that people did uh, some pretty dumb stuff in the Bible. Um, Jacob, uh, Jacob marries the wrong person. He's supposed to marry one girl 
and they trick him, and he marries somebody like he didn't get. Like she came down, she had a black veil on, he couldn't see her face, and he just assumed it was right. Jacob married the wrong person. Samson uh, had a girlfriend that he really liked, and um, she was trying to trick him into telling him the source of his strength. Um, And so three times Samson gave her the wrong information uh, just to test her to see what she would do. And do you know what she she did? She actually did it, and people came to kill him. Um, And then the fourth time, he gave her the right information. Uh, There's lots of people in the Bibles that have done very, very dumb things. And this is the one time that God personally calls somebody a fool. And it deals with how he manages his money. And it deals with something in a realm that morality won't catch. And he pronounces this judgment. He says this. This very night, your life is demanded of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? He basically says, um, your expiration date comes sooner than your stuff's expiration date. And he asks him a neutral question. He says, who's going to have all the stuff that you worked for? It is a neutral question. And do you know what the fool here thinks? Not me. It doesn't matter who else is going to have it. What I know is that I'm not going to have it. And it crushes him. The fact that he worked so hard, so long, or it seems like he worked so hard, so long for all of this stuff, and God says, you're not even going to get to enjoy what you worked for. And then in verse 21, he creates another category of people. He says this, that's how it is with the one who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Basically, he's saying any and everyone, and their end will be the same as this man, who spends all of their life toiling after money and possessions and is not rich towards God. And the story ends. God has the last word, and I think the last, what he's trying to drive in on us is this, is that unless we focus on eternity, you and I are going to be blind to the true value of money. The true value of money doesn't come in terms of what it can do for our present enjoyment. It comes in terms of what we leave behind. Here's the most staggering thing about this whole story. The most staggering thing about this story is that this guy didn't actually do any of it. Do you remember how this story starts off? It says, and he thought to himself. He didn't hire contractors. He didn't actually start this. No sooner than his resolve was set in his heart, does God come, and this is what makes it so hard, y'all, that we serve a God that doesn't just judge our actions, he judges the intentions of our heart. And so it's been said that the best way to get rid of greed is to be generous, outgive greed. The problem is greed is a problem of the heart before it ever shows up in the hands. A heart attack is a problem in the heart before it ever tingles in the hands, y'all. And so 1 Corinthians 13.3, Paul says this, even if I give away everything that I own and I don't have love, I have nothing. So if you heard all this and your thought is, man, I need to go out and do better. All right, I got to try harder. I got to get a budget and I got to give and I got to make sure that I'm not greedy. I want you to know that's not enough. We can't do it, and that's the bad thing. We're in a place where God doesn't just judge what we do, but he judges the intentions of our hearts, the reflexes, the things that we naturally do without thinking. 
That's the bad news. Here's the good news. We can't do it, but there's somebody else that did. Jesus Christ lived his entire life on this earth as the wisest man to ever walk this earth. He could have made a fortune. Do you know how much money you can make if you know what everybody's thinking? Do you know how much money you can make if you actually can heal people? Jesus spends his entire life on this earth not chasing after personal wealth as if that's the way to fulfillment. He spends his entire life on this earth giving of himself. He gives himself to us to the very point that being in the garden of Gethsemane on his knees, praying if there was any other way for us to be saved. And God says to him a similar thing that said he the rich fool. This night, tonight, your soul is going to be required of you. And all the stuff that you worked for, whose will it be? The selfish heart finds that a devastating question because the only name that they can think of is they say, I don't care who else gets it. I know I'm not me. When God says to the Lord Jesus, tonight your soul is going to be required. And all the stuff that you worked for, whose will they be? Jesus says, I can sit here and tell you all the names, but it'll take me so long to run through the list. He knows all of us by name, y'all. He spent his life working living the life that we couldn't live to earn the love of God that we couldn't earn. We spent our life being greedy and chasing, and he spent his life giving. So that Mark 10 tells us that Jesus came not to be served, not to get a sense of wealth and status and prestige so that everybody could just serve him, but he came to serve and to give his entire life as a ransom and a payment for all of us who find ourselves gripped by this very greed, gripped by this very materialism that he himself died on the cross for. And when posed with the same question, whose will it be? Jesus had names in his mind. And I want you to know that if you're here and you say, that's me, I'm greedy, I know I can't change it, I want God, I want him, I want to let go of all of this, then your name can be added to that list with an acknowledgement of this is who I am. No excuses. This is what I need. And I believe that Jesus paid the debt that I racked up. This is what defined Jesus' life. Hebrews tells us that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. It was his focus on what would take place in eternity when everyone that he saved would rejoice together with God that enabled him to pay any earthly price for us. And this is what it means to be Christian. This is how we live Christianly in the world. We live like he lived. Because Jesus didn't only save us and pay our debt, but he's actually changing us on the inside to where our reflexes don't go immediately towards things and what can make us happy. He changes us on the inside so that we surprise ourselves by the decisions that we make not to pursue money as the ultimate end, but the decisions that we make to leave those things on the shelf and pursue Jesus. So what do we do? How do we make this a reality in our lives? Two words. Let go. Let go. It's been said, he who serves God for money will serve the devil for better wages. The answer to greed is not just generosity. Generosity flows from gratitude. An acknowledgement 
that God has given you more and better than you deserve. And so here's how we let go. The very first thing that we do is we start off by thanking God for everything that we have. Uh, And when you thank God for all he's given you, you realize that you have way more than you thought that you did and you are deserving of none of it. And after we thank God for what he's provided for us, then we ask him what he would have us to do with what we have. Look, and there are times where as sure as God won't tell you what pants to put on in the morning, he may not tell you how to spend certain things that you have. And in those cases, we would consider that, well, there's a freedom that I have. This is not anti-money. God does give us money for our enjoyment, and we want to take advantage of it. And there are some times where we may pray and we may not hear from God how he wants us to spend the last 10 bucks in our wallet, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't ask. Because there are times that as we ask, what we do is we acknowledge that all that we have is God's. And we realize that sometimes he's silent, but it doesn't mean he never speaks to us. Maybe our lack of asking is that you and I are afraid that he'll ask for something that we don't want to give up. I want you to know, if money is an idol, it presents lots of false hopes in your life. Um, And the first step towards God bringing in new hope into our life is that he often has to crush these false hopes that we have. So don't take disappointment in the realm of how we would desire to use our finances as a bad thing, God speaks and there are words of life. So one of the questions that I want to leave you with is this. Uh, What things do you have in your life right now that you're unwilling to let go of? What's the one thing that you would say, well, I'd give away all of this, but this is one thing that I won't touch? Just as a rule of thumb, what I found out is this. Um, If your problem is that you have more than what you need, one of the best things that you can do with your time is find somebody else that doesn't have that problem and help them get what they need. The very first thing is let go. We let go by the way we thank God, by the way that we ask him what he would do with what we have. And three, by attacking the belief that I just need a little bit more before I can give. What that really says is that all I have is what I need to satisfy my soul. I don't want to let go of it at all. Let me just get a little bit more so that I can keep what I have. Let me encourage you. Whatever you have is all God's. Let him dictate how you use it and trust that he brings words of life. So that's one. Practically, just really quick things as we close up. Um, Don't just let go of your stuff and do that on your own. To uh, bring somebody else in. Bring in a conversation partner. Here's the first conversation partner that'll help you out. A budget. Um, A budget is neutral. A budget doesn't lie to you. Uh, A budget based on the past ways that you've spent your money actually helps to reveal what goes on in our hearts. Look at your bank statement and what you'll find out is that the biggest figures are your most important priorities. We can say what we want, but our budget reflects our heart. So start there. Find somebody that can help you get a budget to help shape what your life looks like. Two, Debt. Guard against debt. It's been said uh, that everybody that borrows money robs their future selves. It's so easy for us to think that our life consists of the things that we have. And when God has not provided the means for us to get what we want right now, that we go out and pursue ways to get that. Let me just guard you against going into debt for things that are unwise. And two, if you're already in debt, um, 
get out as quick as you can. Change your standard of living and live free. Lastly, or last, to college students, um, there is no such thing as free money. Uh, your loans um, are going to, you're going to have to pay those back. And so here's why it's so important, not just so that you can buy a house when you feel like you've been called to, not just so that you can get a nice car, not just so that you can get married, but if you are chained down by student loans after college, it is going to impact your ability to be free to serve the Lord in the ways that he may call you to serve him. Take what you need. It may be hard to afford school. Borrow what you need. But get a job and be faithful on your job. And let go of some of the trinkets here and now that you'll praise God that you didn't invest in later. And I think after we thank God and we're gracious for the things that he's provided to us and our hearts have been changed by Christ, now we're free to give. Generosity is the work of, of the heart before it ever becomes a task for the hands. Find people to give to. Put it in your yearly budget at the start of the year. The people that are most successful in generosity are the people that are most diligent in planning for it. God has given you a life. If you have running water, you have more than what you need. I pray that you wouldn't take it for granted, but that you would be full of gratitude for it, and that you wouldn't come to God demanding something, but that you would come to him and allow him to set the agenda for how you use your stuff. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the way that you self, selflessly have provided for us. I pray that you would fill our hearts to do the same thing, Lord. Would you make us um, a church that's full of gratitude towards you and a church that's generous with everything that you've provided for us, Father? Um, Father, help us not to be Mastered by greed, I pray that the money that you provide to us would be a tool for your glory and never an idol that competes with it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.